Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, let's go to the Word this morning. Um, I want to look at Ezra chapter 8. And I want to talk about this morning, faithfulness for the journey. Faithfulness for the journey. And I want to start by asking a question, a question that can get you in trouble if you're not careful as a Christian. It's a little subjective, but nonetheless, it's something we've talked about and we're going to talk about more today. And so I want to put it out there. Have you ever sensed the presence of God on you or with you for some particular purpose? Or... If I flip the coin over, maybe the absence of the presence of God uh, for a particular purpose. I'll tell you a story. In 2002, I led a mission team to Escapulas, Guatemala to do uh, evangelism. And we were doing some of the prep work to hopefully be able to plant a church there. And Escapulas is over in the eastern part of the country. It's right on the border where Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras meet. So geographically, it's not at a location that's been known for peace historically in our lifetime anyway. Uh, At Escapulas is a place called the Cathedral of the Black Christ. Now the Cathedral of the Black Christ centers around a crucifix that has been carved out of the native black rock of that area. Some of the most beautiful rock. Guatemala is one of the leading producers in the world for jade. Green jade is most indicative of the country, but this black jade is amazing and polished. It's absolutely beautiful and stunning. And this cathedral of the black Christ is carved out of this black stone, and it is amazing and incredible. Over 600,000 Central Americans come every year to purchase their blessing at the cathedral. And so it's a spiritually very dark area where those who claim the name of Christ are present, but also much um, animism and spiritism and essentially Satan worship is, is just kind of mixing and syncretizing in that part of the world. And because of that, it is a very, very dark place. And we took a team of about 15 of us in. Our goal, we were working with a missionary who lived in Guatemala. Our goal for that week was basically to prayer walk and to knock on doors and just see if we could find a person of peace in order for that missionary to connect with because our hopes were that we would plant a church there uh, in the, uh, the years to come. We had a phenomenal week. I mean, it could not have gone better at the beginning of the week. We went in. Every morning, we prayer walked. We had broken the city and the surrounding area up. We would prayer walk for about three to four hours in the morning, come back and eat lunch. And then we would go back to the same area we prayer walked and knock on doors. We did this for, we were going to do it for four uh, straight days. And on the fourth day, we were going to leave that afternoon. We needed to drive back to Guatemala City to catch the flight out for the next day. And 
If you know anything about Guatemala, you don't want to drive into the city uh, when you're a gringo because that kind of puts a bullseye on your back, or after dark anyway. It puts a bullseye on your back. It's a very dangerous city to be in. And so we needed to get in before daylight fell. So we were pressed for time that morning. It was about a five-hour drive back. And so that morning, instead of prayer walking, we just got straight to the business. We just started knocking on doors. And I mean, every door we went to was completely opposite from every other day we had been there. Doors got slammed in our face. People said things to us that it was in Spanish, and I don't speak nor understand it if it's outside of burrito, fajita, or otherwise, uh, queso, you know. And, and, but I know whatever they were saying was not kind words. It was not bless you. It was something else. Uh, you know, it, it was bad. And I mean, we were just, you could feel from the heat of the morning, even that morning, it was very oppressive. You could feel just the, the strength of heart dissipating from our team. And we came down to the end of the street that the, the four or five that I specifically was with were, uh, were traveling with. And we knocked on the last house on that street. And there was another house about 150 to 200 yards further down, but it was kind of off by itself, set in the woods. We weren't sure if it was a house or a barn or exactly what it was. And so we decided this would be our last house. We knocked on the door and this lady answers the door by opening the door about this much. And she spoke in Spanish and the interpreter began to, to speak back to her. And basically she said to us, why are you here and what do you want? And we told her who we were, and she said, I don't want anything to do with you, and tried to shut the door. And our interpreter just put her hand on the door to say, hey, can, can you help us understand why you don't want to talk to us? Because we, this whole street and this area of the city has been this way. Why don't you want to speak to us? She said, there's a witch that lives in that house right over there, and she put a curse on y'all. And the word on the street is anybody that talks to you will be cursed by the same curse. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. And all of a sudden, she kind of screamed frantically and started yelling something in Spanish, slammed the door, and that was the last conversation we had in Escapulas. And the interpreter said that what she was yelling before she closed the door was that the devil dogs were coming, the devil dogs were coming, and she didn't want them to get her. So I recommended as the team leader, we leave. We had already encountered a few stray dogs in the streets and I don't know if they were devil dogs or not, but they weren't very nice. And if these others were devil dogs, I didn't want to deal with them either. So let's go ahead and get back on the van and leave. And that's what we did. But all the way back driving into the city, we're, we're conversing about what happened on that day and how much of a, an absolute failure it was for us. I mean, it was, it was so evident. Every team of the three teams that went out, every one of them met the same fate that day. Failure after failure on every home that we knocked on. And by that night, as we sat around dinner and we talked about the events of the day, we came to one conclusion, that we failed in the work because we failed to pray first. In other words, we went straight to what we could do instead of, interceding for what God wanted to do. And we, we reached the conclusion that it would have been better for us to walk the streets and pray for those homes instead of trying to talk to anyone rather than only knocking on the doors and not having time to pray. It was a very humbling experience for us, but one I'll never forget. When we come to chapter 8 of Ezra, what we're finding in Ezra 8 is that it gives us more details about what took place in chapter 7. 
So what's Ezra chapter 7 introduced, uh, uh, that on which we should center our life, the Word of God. And, and we learn from Ezra 7 that the life that is centered on God's Word is the life that the hand of God rests upon. And we saw that phrase three times in Ezra chapter 7. And I made the comment that anytime something is repeated three times in Scripture, there's a literary emphasis being given to it. The writer is wanting to communicate something that's very very important, so you need to pay attention to that. And that's what we did in Ezra chapter 7. Well, when we come to Ezra chapter 8, it basically covers the same storyline, but it reveals with greater insight and detail what was happening. And we learn in chapter 8 that not only is, uh, should our life be centered on the Word of God, but the way that one lives centered on God's Word is in faithful obedience to that Word. So that's what we're going to see in Ezra chapter 8. And when a person centers their life on, God word, on God's word to walk in faithful obedience and to serve his mission with their life, there is a distinctive favor and power from God that rests on their life. So in other words, today we're going to see that same phrase three times in the chapter 8 of Ezra that we are being told something and it is this, that, that we're going to learn, it is the faithfulness of God that fuels the faithful obedience of his people. It's the faithfulness of God that fuels the faithful obedience of his people. You see, sometimes we get this backwards. We think if we're faithful to God, he'll be faithful to us. That's not the way it works. It's the reverse order. It is the faithfulness of God that fuels the faithfulness of his people. And so I want you to see this today, that Christians live in faithful obedience to God's mission by God's faithfulness upon their lives. We live in faithful obedience to God's mission by God's faithfulness upon their lives. Now, for some of you who maybe haven't been around as long as others, let me help you understand something. When I say the word mission today, it's, it's an all-inclusive concept that I'm trying to communicate. It's not just formal mission that we as the church might be doing, but it's the everyday activity of the Christian's life. You see, there's not a day, not an event, not an activity that the Christian does that they're not serving the mission of God's kingdom in the world. So I, I mean this word comprehensively today. When I talk about mission and obedience, I am fundamentally denoting the same activity by both individually and corporately as God's people. You see, what we're going to see today is that pursuing God, this whole series that we've been talking about, is a journey of one's whole life. The journey is our life. It's not just a trip that these people are taking. Even though this is the second wave of, of people who will return, it's, it's not just a trip or a vacation. It's not even a new place that they're going to live only. It is a new way of living. That's what this is all about. And that's what the Christian life is about, friends. You may not change your address when you get saved and become a Christian, but everything about you has changed. And that's what he's trying to tell us today. When we build our life centered on Jesus Christ and his word, everything becomes about him. You can't just give him the parts that you want to get rid of. The parts that you think are most problematic are the parts that bother you the most. He owns you, Christian, because he bought you with his own blood. That's what Revelation tells us. He purchased by his blood those he ransomed for God's glory. Faithfulness may appear to some 
as bothering with unimportant or tedious details. That's what faithfulness appears to some. They say, oh, you're just being legalistic. You just, you're, trying to, you're trying to do something that you don't have to do. If you just believe and trust, God will love you and everything will work out. But faithfulness, friends, always gives attention. Listen to me. Faithfulness to God always gives attention and priority where God has given instruction in his word. The one who lives with the hand of God upon their life prioritizes faithful to God because they're resting in his faithfulness. So how is it that we live faithfully on the journey of pursuing God? Well, that's what we're going to look at today in Ezra chapter 8. And I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter. I'm I'm going to walk us through it for the sake of time and, and talk about the three different sections we're going to look at. But there are three major sections in this chapter that are marked by the same phrase that we looked at in chapter 7, the hand of God upon his people. And these three lessons we see today will teach us how it is we trust God's faithfulness to empower our own faithfulness and obedience to him. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 8 and let's begin by looking at the people of the journey. The people of the journey. In verse 1, it begins and we have this abbreviated genealogy again. We've seen several genealogies in the book of Ezra to date and here we have another one. You see, the people that were on this trip are not unimportant to God. That's why we keep seeing a list of their names. And in this genealogy, we see that 12 family units were listed. And we see again that each of the 12 family units is a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I've said this, but I want to reiterate it today as we've seen throughout all of Ezra. All the tribes are represented because he's reminding the people, he's reminding the reader that God has not forgotten any of them when he sent them into exile and his call to return home. And so what does Ezra do? But he gathers the people at the river. Verse 15, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava and there we camped three Days. He gathers the people at the river to prepare for the trip and he makes an important finding there that among all of the people, there's one kind of people that are not among them. The sons of Levi. Who is it that Ezra was so shocked by? I mean, we've already said the 12 tribes of Israel are all represented. God's not forgotten any of them, but there are no sons of Levi. You see, the Levites were the people among the Israelites who were appointed by God to lead in the temple work. In other words, they were the leaders in the worship and in relating to God. There were priests and there were scribes and there were others who served in that capacity, but the Levites were ordained by God to lead the people and so Ezra sends some of the leaders among the men to uh, back to the city and he says that he wants to find Levites who will join them in the work now some would say you know this is really unimportant why why did Ezra waste the time why didn't he just take the people that wanted to go and go on anyway we know why it's unimportant many make little of biblical leadership still today even in the church But Ezra said it's not unimportant because God's given us instruction to it. Therefore, we ought to give priority to it. And he held up the whole journey. They couldn't do anything 
Because Ezra said, we're not going until the right people as ministers for God's house are among us. You see, once they have the right leaders for worship, that's when Ezra says and recognizes that the hand of God is up on them because he's provided his sons of Levi for them. And so there's where we have. Ezra prioritized making sure that God's appointed leaders were among them to lead the people in worship. What does this tell us? Well, the people were important to God. But they were being sent to bear witness to God's glory in the world. The right kind of leaders among them were a priority to God. Therefore, Ezra knew they needed to be a priority for us. And listen, they're important not because of who they were. The Levites are important not because of the individual names, but they're important because of who they represented among the people. They represented God. That was God's purpose, to have them among the people. And because God's people, because these were God's people, it meant priority needed to be given to godly leadership for his purpose and for his mission. Were there capable people among the whole group? Absolutely there were. There were not appointed people according to God's purpose and mission. You see, friends, godly leadership is not about the importance of any individual. Listen to this, church. I'm going to talk about some perversions and confusions of the culture in just a moment. Godly leadership is not about individual people. It is about the importance of God's purpose ensuring that life remains under his faithful hand. That's what godly leadership is about. Here's the first lesson I want you to learn today. Lesson number one, faithfulness in pursuing God means you prioritize surrounding your life with Jesus-centered fellowship and biblically qualified leadership. Pursuing or faithfulness in pursuing God means you prioritize surrounding your life with Jesus-centered fellowship and biblically qualified leadership. Christian, God cares how you live every day because your everyday life with him is a journey of walking with him on mission in the world. And the people that you fill your life with are the ones that influence you most. They're the ones that bend your ear, that have the greatest influence with you. They influence where you spend your time. They give you direction on where you go, how you go, and even why you go. They influence the way you think, the way you process and make decisions. And ultimately, they even come to influence the very shaping of the values of your life that you most desire and embrace and the things that you consume your life with. This is not inconsequential, but so many go, it really doesn't matter. You see, surrounding our life for godly influence really includes three aspects. Fellowship, fellowship, and leadership. Fellowship, fellowship, and leadership. That's what we're seeing here. Now, fellowship is that network of relationships with other Christians in a local church centered on Jesus Christ. If you want to make the application of what's taking place here in chapter 8, the fellowship was there. Like they were hitting on all 12 cylinders or all 12 tribes, if you will. But the problem was there was not godly leadership in the midst of them. And fellowship cannot occur, listen to me, Fellowship cannot occur faithfully 
without godly leadership. In fellowship, we source our strength from Jesus through other Christians. That's what fellowship is all about, friends. By the encouragement they bring, the strength of heart, by exhortation that they they give to us, reminding us of God's truth, reminding us of what God's word has said, and often calling us to, uh, to repentance and conviction and encouraging us to walk in righteousness. And all of those ways that we exhort one another, the mutual sharing of life and the ministering to one another, what fellowship does is it defines the word of God being fleshed out among the people of God by the working of the Spirit of God. through the ministry of God's people. If you look at Acts chapter 2 and and the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4, we begin to see an initial glimpse of what fellowship was doing because we've entered into the age of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit is the person of the triune God who is with us and leading us now. He's always been there. He's eternally existent, but now he is the front runner, if you will. He's the one working in us, and it tells us that, that all of the disciples were together and had everything in common. There was a mutuality. Why is that? Because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread and to ministry with one another. That's what Acts tells us. And so we know these are the things they were devoting themselves to because of the apostolic influence and godly leadership for them. Acts chapter 4 tells us there was a mutuality. It says no one considered everything that he had to be his own, but he considered it as ready to be used for anyone that had a need for it to be used. Mutuality of sharing life. This is why we champion life together. It's why we champion community at LifePoint. It's, it's not for community's sake, but for fellowship to flourish so God's people can be strengthened to remain, to remain faithful in response to his faithfulness. Uh, honestly, friends, you can find community anywhere. You, you can get it anywhere. It's like one of the biggest marketing tools there is. And most of the community that is found today isn't real. It's pseudo. It's false. It's built around people you don't know, connections you manage when you want it and the way you want it to the extent you want it, which typically we go way too far in, give far too much significant influence without even knowing who's on the other end of it. You can find community anywhere, but you can't find community that builds your life for God's kingdom purpose anywhere other than the local church. This can seem so simple, and yet so quickly we disregard its true importance for our life. The Bible teaches that fellowship within a local church is critical and essential for every Christian. Not just for you to have some Christian friends that you do things with on occasion at times, but I'm talking about the investment in a group of people that are covenanted together for the purpose of serving God's mission and glorifying his name in the world. Does that mean there's only one right local church? Not at all. It does establish the boundaries for the purpose of every local church. And you see, Christians choose to invest in the fellowship of a local church for faithfulness to trust God's faithfulness. It's a response of faith into his initiative, his call to us of faith. 
And so from fellowship then naturally flows fellowship and leadership. You see, as in the Old Testament, God has provided very clear instruction for who it was that he determined to lead his people and under which his favor would rest upon his people. Ezra knew this, that even though everybody was represented at the river, the hand of God could not rest upon them until they submitted to the will of God that was explicitly stated for them. That's why he waited God ordained the fellowship of the church to source faithfulness to him and to champion fellowship to godly, biblically qualified leadership. You know, throughout the generations, we've allowed the cultural influences to convolute faithfulness to biblical leadership. How have we done it? Principally by redefining what biblical leadership is or what acceptable church leadership is, discounting what the scriptures actually teach. And the church has always been susceptible to charisma. And often we've convoluted charisma with godly anointing. Man, if they can produce it, it must be the case. The fact is, all too often we're crushed when we realize there wasn't any godliness in it at all. It was just something they conjured up on their own. Charisma is a deceptive substitute for character every time. Every time. A generation ago or so, we became programmed. As our world advanced and became more professional in so many ways, we became programmed as the church to find the most skilled professional. So we began to think skill and talent was the best qualifier for spiritual leadership. In recent decades, the culture has shifted yet again. If you're not aware of that, I'm sorry to crush your bubble. But the values of the culture are in flux and shifting. And in a culture consumed today by sexuality, we are inclined to adopt as a principal indicator for spiritual leadership whatever we can observe by outward attraction. One of the ways that I think the church has done this, and listen, just because it's come through a battle doesn't mean the essence of that battle was always wrong, but I can tell you 25 years ago, we started fighting over whether the preacher had to wear a tie or not. And it seemed like it became a big deal. Churches were, they had people walking out of churches because our pastor didn't wear a tie this week. What's he thinking? How are we going to choke him if we don't like the sermon? And so we've said, you know, they got to wear the right clothes. And now we've even dialed it in. They got to wear the right sneakers to be able to preach the word of God faithfully. You think I'm joking. Listen, I operate among some pastor groups that would have to acknowledge this. There are legitimate qualifications. They joke about it, but they don't resist doing it. You don't wear the right sneakers. You're not in the crowd, the in crowd. It's not about the sneakers, friends. It's about what we've come to value because of the way we've been influenced outside of Scripture. In a culture that rejects authority and idolizes hyper-connectivity, which I would argue and I've already referenced as false connectivity. Leaders are judged by how much are they like me above how much are they like Jesus. So we're looking for the idolatry of those that look more like us instead of those that look more like him. 
We live in a culture today where we want mentors, we want counsel, and so we go find somebody two or three years or even five years outside of our age range. And what we find is when they give us wise counsel, that their wise counsel is embroiled in the same issues and problems that we are embroiled in. Why? Because they're at the same stage of life that we're involved in, the same place of life. We haven't looked outside of our generation. We've looked inside our confines of what we are willing to tolerate and accept. We won't listen to the older generation because they don't understand the problems that I'm living through. Friends, we won't listen to the younger generation because they've not yet lived through everything. I found this. People don't have to walk through everything that I'm walking through to understand how to get me through it. And I've learned more about where I am in my own spiritual walk with Christ just by listening to those who are babes in Christ considered to how long I've been a Christian. Why is it that we can't listen to one another and absorb and receive the wisdom of God that is transcendent and eternal? Because we look at the shell and we go, I I can't learn anything from them. I had a pastor say one time, I can't learn from any other pastor whose church is smaller than mine. No, that's not what you should have said. You should have said you can't learn from any other pastor because you're a stubborn, rebellious something. In a culture that rejects authority and idolizes trending topics of today, Not just trending topics of things we ought to be aware of news-wise, but things we got to rage about, we got to get extreme about. This is it for today. This is it for this week. Leaders get judged by how well they understand, how well they accept, no, keep going. How well they embrace, no, keep going. How well they rage about my own individual experience is most important above all. Instead of how well they know God and are committed to proclaim his truth. I'm not bragging about it. I'm lamenting it. I believe churches are filled with just somebody that the world said could lead because how hard could it be? Charisma, skill, talent, ability, education, and experience, these are all valuable qualities, but they are only beneficial for the church when character is biblically qualified. Otherwise, they'll always be used for personal gain and they will never be ultimately yielded for God's purpose. The priority of biblical qualified leadership is not about any individual. It is about trusting the Lord's faithfulness to us and giving priority to that. God's hand is on people when their faithful leadership and fellowship cultivates gospel fellowship as a priority. I'm going to repeat that one more time. God's hand rests on his people when faithful leadership and their fellowship cultivates a gospel fellowship as first priority. Next, verse 21 to 30. We consider how Ezra began to prepare them for the journey. And so I want us to look at the preparation that he made for the journey here. Once everyone was gathered at the river, uh, verse 21, uh, Ezra uh, leads in spiritual preparation. He 
proclaims a fast to humble them before the Lord. Verse 21, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Now that seems like it's a good thing to do. That's a good idea, Ezra, let's do that. But there's a reason he did this. Listen, don't miss the reason. Verse 22, he says, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since I had already told the king, well, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Ezra said this, look, I couldn't go back to the king and ask him for help. I'd already cast a vision that was so much bigger we didn't need the king's help because we had made some claims that we knew to be true but we hadn't yet had to trust about God. Preachers can get themselves in trouble. Ezra recognizes the real dangers. Friends, if you do the math, there were roughly 37 to 43 million dollars worth of valuables that they were transporting in this group of people in today's terms. I don't know about you, but I would garner that there are plenty of thieves in the world today that'd be interested in getting just a little piece of that. And Ezra was not a man who was unaware of the threats that they would not just potentially, but likely incur over this journey. We talked about last week, the journey was probably, or excuse me, two weeks ago, the journey was probably going to be about 500 miles. But many commentators say it could have been as long as 900 miles because of the time of year you don't walk through the desert in the heat of the year. You go around it to miss the heat because you don't survive if you go through the desert. Up to 900 miles, they could encounter many dangers, and Ezra knew this, but he didn't want to ask the king for help because he had already made a claim that he believed about God, but he hadn't yet had to be tested in the fire of real life. And so he said, I I was ashamed to even think about asking the king for something we'd already claimed God was going to do for us. You see, friends, Ezra had plenty of fear He had plenty of fear, but he prepared himself by submitting his fear of the realities of what lay ahead to replace it with faith in God, the one who was going to lead them through this. And faithful preparations led them to have the right priorities for the journeys. Faithful preparation led them to have the right priorities for the journey. They set their heart on the things that God wanted them to do and they set their hearts on the one who is leading them. You know what faithful preparation spiritually does for us? It reminds us of who we are, our identity. We're God's people. It determines our purpose for life and for the journey. We're serving his mission. And therefore, what we should receive as first priority of all time should be determined by the glory of God and our worship to him and not some secondary value that we place on it. You see, this spiritual preparation gave each person among them a unity, not only in the vision, but also in their own strength of heart for the journey that was before them. Here's the second lesson I want you to see today. Faithfulness in pursuing God begins by fully submitting our lives to walk by faith in obedience to fulfill his purposes for his glory. It begins by fully submitting our lives to walk by faith in obedience to God. 
And what does he do? He calls a fast. Fasting is that process of seeking God to submit our whole being to him. When we fast, we withhold ourselves from something that is good and necessary for the sustenance of life to say to God, you are more important than even the foundational fundamental needs of my life. And when our stomach growls and even our body reacts, it tells us we are a people who are finite, but we can worship a God who is infinite. We have needs. We worship a God who has no need, but all love and desire for us. This is what fasting does. It reorients our life to God in the direction of our life, in the actions of our life, in the timing of our life, the purpose and the glory for our life. It takes the confusion of our mind. It takes the fears and the anxiety of our heart. And as Jesus says, we cast the yoke of, that is heavy and a burden to us, and we take his yoke that is light, receiving his peace upon our heart and the clarity upon our mind. And every person who prepares himself in this way is filled by the presence of God for the journey called life. You see, through fasting and submitting to God in prayer, our life gets oriented to his power and to his promise above any earthly threat. And friends, you and I both know from little to big, we live in the face of threats every day. And so Ezra testifies in his faith that which he learned by testing from the fire of life. And he tells us in verse 22 what the psalmist states in Psalm 34, 15 to 16. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. If you have a God that is true to this, you need no other defense. This is so important for us as Christians today that Peter, re, uh, uh, that Peter resonates this truth to the first century Christians in chapter 3 of his letter to them to remind them of this same important truth. Some of you are new to LifePoint, and this will be the first time you've ever heard this. Some of you have been here for a while, and you've heard this so many times, you could tell it. Good, I'm going to keep telling it. It's one of my favorite. Because it tells about this church at an infant stage when we were only four years old, but we were meeting about a mile north of here in a facility that was far too small for the gathering that we were having on a weekly basis. And we had already purchased this land, but there was no building on it. The Sunday before, we met on the back property and we had a great celebration about all the things that God had done and we knew what he wanted to do. And on Thursday of that week, the stock market had a, a more significant fall than any time between that and the Great Depression that had happened a long time prior I mean that's a bad way to lead into commitment Sunday of a capital campaign that was a bad few days we got to church on Sunday and there was a murmur among all of us it was the echo of our heart we going to wait to see what happens and where we go with this. I mean, we were right on the precipice of, we, we, that's probably, it'd probably be why. I mean, we, you know, we were thinking about all the reasons that should have been. And then somewhere in the midst of the spirit of that fellowship of that morning, God turns the hearts of his people to say, wait a minute. 
The stock market didn't get us here. It's not going to get us through it. We're going to move forward. We'll take what our people commit. And we'll move forward with that. Because God brought us here. He'll get us through it. And where God got us through and where he brought us to is what you're sitting in today. From that and many others, I've often said, with all that we've seen God do, how could we not trust what he calls us to? You see, friends, until in faith you submit your life to God, you will never obey by faith to pursue God. You'll always interpret God's will as your understanding, your ability, because it won't make sense if you don't. But the prayer for us in verses 21, 22, and 23, just to to summarize, it says this, God, if you're not in this, we don't want anything to do with it. But if you are, don't let anything stop us. No fear of heart, no threat of life. We will advance. You see, friends, trusting God is not always about putting your life on the extreme edge of life and death, physically speaking. And in a world that lives off of adrenaline junkies and extremism that can often be the case that churches buy into it because if we do this for God, it will make a great statement about God, but they don't give consideration to the one they think they're acting for, God himself. But I can tell you this, trusting God always puts you on the spiritual brink even when you never saw the cliff coming. And if your heart is not set, the potential risk that, it ar- that arise will never prove worth it. Because the essence of the Christian life, the essence of following Jesus, the essence of pursuing God is this. You must die to self first before you ever will live for Christ. There's one reason God doesn't answer your prayers or respond to your needs so often. Because we approach God with our requests instead of making petition from a surrendered heart. And when you pray this way, usually what we do is we identify the very things that are interfering with our relationship with God. God, I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to tell you this, this. Legitimate needs, so often legitimate burdens of life, we just don't stop to ask God about them. We just throw them at him like a laundry list. I mean, even a contemporary country singer knows this. Some of you attended his concert last night, Northwest Arkansas. Didn't even invite your pastor from Arkansas. That's a shameless plug. Garth Brooks, back in the day, some of y'all don't even know this song. He sang a song called Unanswered Prayers. And the story of the song begins, he and his wife return to a football game of his high school. And while they're at the game, they encounter his old girlfriend. And they see her and they talk to her for just a moment, have a casual, uh, you know, interaction there. And as he walks away, it causes him to thank God for the prayers he didn't answer that he so feverishly prayed in high school. And here's what the chorus says. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. This also reminds us that we shouldn't build our theology off country songs because that's terrible, (laughs) terrible theology right there. Remember when you're talking to him that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. You see, God says no because his yes is always greater. For you and for glory. Pursuing God begins with obedience by faith to his will and his purpose as your highest aim in life. I need to move quickly through this third section. Verses 31 to 36. 
I want us to look at the praise of the journey. They arrive in Jerusalem. They praise God to recognize his hand the whole way. The first thing they did was rest. Sometimes the greatest act of faith is to do nothing and to rest. That's what they did. Three days, it says. Next, they counted the elements of the worship to ensure that everything had arrived safely. Faithful stewardship. Number three, they offered sacrifices to testify to God's power for the journey. That's sacrificial giving. Number four, they bore witness to the local governor with a letter from the king of why they had come to serve God's mission in rebuilding his temple. That's a faithful witness. Every act upon their arrival was an act of praise to God in recognizing what he had done and that he had been faithful to his promise all along the way. Here's the third lesson I want you to see today. Faithfulness in pursuing God always culminates in all praise to God because of complete dependency upon God. It always culminates in all praise to God because of our complete dependency upon Him. You see, we're far too often far more concerned with God guaranteeing us the life we want more than trusting the promise He's already provided. And when we live this way, we live absent of faith. We deny him glory and we deny his praise because that kind of living demands us trust none at all. It becomes evident in the activities of and even the thinking in our way of life. When our heart is not set to obey God, our minds will not remember to honor God. Our tongue will not be careful to praise God and therefore our lives cannot glorify God. You know, when you consider these four acts of praise, rest, faithful stewardship, sacrificial giving, and faithful witness, sorry, I couldn't remember them. When you consider those, it's no wonder the church is so weak today. Those are four of the weakest measurements of the modern church today. We've done everything else other than praise God. When you trust God for his protection and provision, you don't look at the threat or the risk to decide whether or not you're going to obey. You trust God. He's made a promise. The Christian life is one that is fully expended for the glory and praise of God and our testimony of his faithfulness must be careful to declare this to all. Christians live in faithful obedience to God's mission by God's faithfulness upon their life. As the worship team returns, would you bow with me?